Thank you for choosing OECD Podcasts. Welcome to OECD Podcasts. I'm Kate Lancaster, and I'm speaking with Steve Keen, Professor of Economics at Kingston University in London and Honorary Professor of Economics at University College London. He's also a self-described contrarian and anti-economist. Hello, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us. You're at the OECD today taking part in our conference, 10 years after the failure of Lehman Brothers. What have we learned? And that seems like a great question with which to start. Mm. So as one of the few people to have predicted the crisis, Mm. what have the past 10 years shown you, shown us? I've learned that um, says crises can happen, take longer to happen than you expect and hit more rapidly than you think when they finally do, and then be dragged out by government actions which don't understand what actually caused the crisis in the first place, uh, but mean that you end up in a quagmire afterwards. So I knew that to some extent from seeing what happened in Japan, but it's been strange to live through it myself with what happened in the United States, UK and Europe. What caused it then? It was caused by two very simple things, too much private debt and private debt growing too quickly. Private debt is the level of money you owe, the change in that level of money you owe is credit. It's so mm-hmm. we create the banking sector creates money by giving you a new loan. So that's the change in debt. And the change in debt they're recording against you is, of course, absolutely identical to the amount of money they give you. And that money, you, nobody borrows for the fun, for the uh, sheer joy of being in debt. No, you borrow I don't to think spend. So. Yes. so it adds to total demand. Now, that means during the, the, the run-up like we had in America, uh, at one point, credit was equivalent to about 15% of GDP, mm. meaning there's an additional demand above what comes from the turnover of existing money. And then when the crisis hit and people were both going bankrupt and also having to uh, reduce their debts to, uh, deliberately rather than through bankruptcy, you went from credit being plus five, 15 to minus 6% of GDP. Now that's a 20% plus yeah. turnaround in yeah. total demand in the economy. Mm. That's what caused the crisis. It's pardon the French, bleedingly obvious that that's what caused it. But economic theory has convinced itself, mainstream theory convinced itself that Debt and credit and money and banks play no role in macroeconomics. A decade later, they're still coming up with the same nonsense, but the data is screamingly obvious. That's what caused the crisis. Well, you've called these traditional neoclassic economics the naked emperor of social sciences. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you think they're missing? Oh, virtually everything. (laughs) <laughs> and they think they're virtually missing virtually everything. I don't know that they're missing virtually everything, which is why the Naked Emperor is such a wonderful yes. line. I actually stole that from Alan Kerman, I must say, uh-huh. who's the OECD yes. advisor of the yes, you know, new economics challenges. So, yeah, they have a theory which presumes the economy is in equilibrium, and that that's a good thing. Uh, equilibrium is the last way you'd characterise what capitalism is about. It's not about stability. It's about instability and change. And they characterise it as well as being a barter system where money doesn't play any particular role. There has never been a barter-based economy, and capitalism is the furthest you can get from being barter-based. So it has these two notions of equilibrium and barter, and they're completely fallacious. What Uh, about competition in all of that? Competition, again, they exaggerate and don't understand what competition is in the first place. Competition to them is, is charging a lower price for an identical product. There's no way that we buy identical products. It's, it's about mm. product differentiation that matters. And competition really is trying to innovate past your competitors. Uh, the cost structure that firms have is completely different to the mythology of the textbook. The whole idea that marginal cost rises is nonsense. It's empirically false. And they ignore it because it doesn't suit their theories. That's a very strong statement. 
Can you go into a little more detail on that? Oh, simply, if you, the cost of production for firms is based on what it costs to run a factory when the factory has been designed by engineers to operate at maximum efficiency when it's at 100%. Mm. Uh, so as you increase your capacity, you might start a factory at, say, 50% capacity because you have to have excess capacity to expand, otherwise you've got to build another factory next week. So you, have, you might start at, say, 50 or 70%. And as you expand your production, you have a higher level of efficiency because you're reaching what are the design capabilities of the factory. So when you look at the average cost of production for firms, or what's it called, the marginal cost, the cost of each new item, it's pretty much constant or falling. And when you do empirical research on that, and there's about at least 40 studies that have been done over time, the most recent by Alan Blinder back in 19, the early 1990s to late 1998, uh, they find that's the situation. So between 89 and 95% of firms report they've got constant or falling marginal cost. Now, does that turn up in the textbooks? No. Why? Because it's inconvenient. The textbooks are based on the idea that the marginal cost must rise, and therefore they ignore the empirical data that finds that it doesn't. And that's a total denial of what economists claim they're doing. They say they're making simplifying assumptions. What they're actually doing is making complicating assumptions to fit their model of the world. And that's why I describe them as being more like Ptolemaic astronomers than anything else. Choosing to come up with spheres instead of thinking that things go around the sun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Having an Earth-centric view and, and modifying the epicycles to make it fit. When a medial right. strikes, you had an extra epicycle inside exactly. there. Uh, totally devoid of reality, while at the same time claiming to be an empirical science. Okay, so we understand. New <laughs> classic economics, you disagree. You can be a contrarian, but what are you offering as an alternative? What kind of a replacement would you like to see in terms of how economics are taught and economics are done? I wanted to start with a, a system, systemic view. System dynamics is okay. the essential starting point that I begin from. Can you explain a little bit more for our listeners what is yeah. system dynamics? Well, see, uh, the reason that neoclassical economics, when it began in the 1870s, used equilibrium thinking, there was no alternative to drawing straight lines and seeing where they intersect. That's mm. all they had, paper and pen. From the, about the 1950s on, engineers were developing system dynamics, which say, well, the systems we're dealing with are out of equilibrium. We have to either constrain them to control them, but we have to understand them when they're out of equilibrium. So technology has been developed to have dynamic, non-equilibrium, changing systems modelled. And if you drive in a modern car or fly in a modern mm. plane, you're in something which has been designed using system dynamics tools. So economists have ignored this stuff because equilibrium is incompatible with system dynamics. So I want them to start with, the first of all, the idea of interacting systems, no ceteris paribus, okay? Get rid of the idea all other things remain equal. No, they don't. You're in a right. changing system, and we have the technology now. It's called a computer. I think some economists may have seen them. Uh, so it's possible to model. <laughs> I, I may have seen one as well. Yeah, it's possible, yeah. I mean, it might even be one here. Mm. Um, so that's, that's partly the starting point. And then top down, the f- obsession economists have with building things from the bottom up, build, deriving macroeconomics from micro, has been known to be false by physicists for about 50 years. There's a wonderful paper that everybody should read, very simple paper to read, called More is Different by a genuine Nobel Prize winner in physics called Philip Anderson. And they pointed out that you cannot derive biology from chemistry. Hmm. If that was possible, then a typical biology exam was, please take these chemicals and create life. Okay. Now, the, the, the physicists know that's not the way you work. You, you have to have a new way of thinking at the aggregate level. You cannot derive the macro from the micro. Mm. Uh, but neoclassical economics obsesses with that. So I want to drive the macro from the macro using system dynamics, and it's quite feasible to do it. And my simplest models 
that I developed back in 1992, predicted what followed in terms of both the great moderation and the great recession. Mm. So the insights are there. It's feasible to model the economy realistically and throw away these fantasies of equilibrium and, uh, and barter. Well, then, moving away then from barter, let's come back to what you mentioned before, credit mm. and debt. Mm. Um, it's been said that debt has been a defining feature of economic crises for many years, many mm. crises. But why then is it that debt and money management continue to confound us? They're hard for us to come to terms with. And what should we be doing differently? Well, I mean, Bernard Later, I can't pronounce his name properly, uh, points out that he was a young student mentioned to Paul Krugman that he was thinking of looking at the monetary system. And Krugman told him, don't study money, it's to be death knell of your career in economics. So fundamentally, the, the first thing you learn in economics in the first year undergraduate course is what they call the, the money illusion. If you have a set of relative prices, here's what you'll consume given your income. Now, if we double your income and double all prices, what happens? The correct answer is nothing, sir. And if you don't answer nothing, sir, then you get kicked out of the course fundamentally. And when the whole idea that money illusion means that money is a veil over barter presumes there's no credit. Mm. Now, as soon as you say there's credit and debt, your measuring stick will change if you change relative prices. You can't avoid that. So the whole starting point gets them to be blind about money, debt, and credit. Now, if you're blind to it, it's just like, again, like being a Ptolemaic astronomer trying to understand a meteor. Now, how would you understand a meteor? It must be an atmospheric event because the heavens are perfect. That mental construct we have blocks our understanding. It's very simple to go to saying capitalism is fundamentally monetary. We can model monetary dynamics. I've built a program to do that that I call Minsky. We can build models in which debt and credit play an essential role, and then we won't be blindsided by these crises anymore. So can you go into a bit more detail? How would you use such a model? What would it show you? What it shows you is that the level of leverage determines economic activity and asset prices. So therefore, you've got a controlled level of private debt. You can't leave the level of private debt as a decision of the banks mm. and the borrowers because the banks uh, can create money simply by double-entry bookkeeping. If you go to have a housing loan, you, know, you bought a new place in Paris, let's say it's 700,000 euro. Well, the way you buy that, the bank said, that's a great idea to buy that place. Here's 700,000 euro. And by the way, you owe us 700,000 euro. Now, if you're competing against me and I want to buy the same place, uh, we've got the same income. I've got an incentive to try to get 710,000 euro to beat mm. you out. So I compete and I want to get more debt, more leverage. And what that does is, as well as that drives the price up by 10,000 mm -hmm. euro, you get a positive feedback between the amount of money created by the banks and the level of house prices, which gives you a runaway process leading to a crisis. Now, if you, once you realise that, you have to say, well, we can't let banks decide how much they want to lend because... The fact that they can create money is not because they're magicians. It's because they've got a license called a banking license mm. given them to buy society. That is why they can create money. And if they don't exercise that right responsibly, that license should be taken away from them. So the answer is regulation? The answer is to control, limit the level of lending so that it's based not on the price of the asset, but the income earning capacity of the asset. Because at the moment, you get this runaway, you know, the more you bid up price, the higher the house prices get and so on. But if you said, well, the maximum either you or I can borrow is, say, 10 times the annual rental income of the property, then the place we might be competing over, which might sell for 700,000 euro in the current environment, might be something like 25,000 euro a year. 
Now, if that meant that therefore you and I could both, no matter what your income was and what mine was, the most either of us could borrow would be a quarter of a million euro, I guarantee the price of that property would not be 700,000. And you'd break away that incentive we currently have to get more leverage. The incentive would be to save, save more of our income. So you'd break that link between asset prices and the level of leverage and other controls like that. But realise that banking is a social responsibility as well as, as the right of a corporation called a bank. And then we could avoid the worst of the financial excesses, but we'll still have them. And this is Hyman Minsky's fundamental point. He said that capitalism is inherently unstable because of characteristics the financial system must have to be consistent with full-blown capitalism. Mm. And that is that the financial system will both provide the money that enables you to invest and respond to signals of increasing profitability to increase that level of debt. So we have to be aware that money is something we have to control for its impact upon the economy itself mm. and direct it to where it's needed rather than to speculation, which is where it currently goes. Okay, so then what is the future of capitalism? Well, I think it's got more to do with the environment than it has to do with the monetary system. Mm. I think we're going to be totally unprepared for what we need to do when the environmental crisis hits us. And uh, in that situation, we're going to need to mobilise the physical resources we can build as fast as possible. And the banking sector, as it stands, will be a positive disincentive to doing that properly. How do we change that then? I think, unfortunately, this is going to sound great to people who believe in the free market, is that countries which have got an authoritarian side to them who can compel people to do things are going to cope better with an ecological crisis than those that rely upon the free market. So I expect China to do a better job in fighting the ecological crisis than America will do because when the Chinese government tells you to do something, you do it. And that involves turning down a coal-powered fire station and putting up a a set of solar panels, that's what you do. So um, the financial sector has been clearly causes problems, serious ones, uh, in the past. It'll cause even more ones in the future when we have to confront a true mobilisation of our resources in a way the financial sector is not at all set up to do. It's been fascinating talking with you. I could go on all afternoon, so thank you for your time. For those of you listening, I'm Kate Lancaster, and this is OECD Podcasts. Find out more about the issues we've been discussing today, go to oecd.org and also to patreon.com slash prof. Steve Keen. Thank you for choosing OECD Podcasts.